Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 167 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of Hollywood's most popular and respected actresses, and more recently, one of its top producers as well. A Best Actress Oscar winner in 2006 for Walk the Line, and an Emmy nominee this year for both producing and acting in the massively acclaimed HBO limited series Big Little Lies, Reese Witherspoon. The 41-year-old has been in the business for 27 years. She started as a child actress, making her big-screen debut at the age of 14 in Robert Mulligan's 1991 film The Man in the Moon. She grew into an impressive young adult actress who gave memorable performances in strong films like Gary Ross's Pleasantville in 1998 and Alexander Payne's Election in 1999. And then she became a full-fledged A-list movie star following her portrayal of Elle Woods, a material girl who pursues her ex all the way to Harvard Law School in Robert Lukedic's blockbuster Legally Blonde in 2001. For the next few years, through 2002 Sweet Home Alabama, 2003's Legally Blonde 2, Red, White, and Blonde, 2004's Vanity Fair, and James Mangold's aforementioned Walk the Line in 2005, Witherspoon was among the highest-paid movie stars and biggest box office draws in the world. But then, for a variety of reasons, she hit a rut that resulted in several years' worth of critical and or commercial flops. Some began to write her off, but with encouragement from her husband, Agent Jim Toth, she reinvented herself as an actress-slash-producer who discovers and options literary properties with a feminist bent for herself or others to star in. The explosion of great work that she has done since— including producing and starring in 2014's Wild, producing 2014's Gone Girl, and most recently producing and starring on 2017's Big Little Lies, a soapy drama-turned-murder mystery centering on several mothers of young children in Monterey, has been described by some as the female version of the reconnaissance, the recessance, if you will, and has left her with perhaps greater influence than ever. Over the course of our conversation at the Formosa Recording Studio in Santa Monica, Witherspoon and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how she wound up in the business in the first place and how the part of Elle Woods in Legally Blonde came along and changed her life personally and professionally, what it meant to her to be embraced by the Hollywood community for Walk the Line, not least with an Oscar, and then what she believes caused her post-Oscar struggles— How her subsequent career reinvention led her from Wild to Big Little Lies, both directed by Jean-Marc Vallée, and why she thinks the latter became appointment television, a true water cooler show in a way that few things have in the age of peak TV, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. We always begin just with the basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, gosh, we're really going we're way gonna back. We're going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and my dad was in the military. He was in the Air Force, and my mom was a labor and delivery nurse at the hospital there, the Baptist Hospital in Metairie. And then we moved to Germany where my dad was stationed, Mm -hmm. and he was working at a hospital in Wiesbaden. And then probably around 1981, we moved back to Nashville, Tennessee, where my grandparents lived, and that's where I grew up. Now, just to get one thing out of the way, it might be occurring to some people, Reese, at least prior to you, was not a common name. Was this inspired by 
delicious chocolate or where did this come from? Where's the <laughs> root of the name? I usually lie and tell little kids that Reese's Pieces are my grandmother's recipe. <laughs> and they usually believe me. Yes. <laughs> but um, no, it's my mother's maiden name. Okay. So she's Mary Elizabeth Reese. And is your first name? or it, it? It's my middle name, actually. Oh, my right. my first name is Laura Jean. Okay. Said all at once. Laura, <laughs> oh, yes, right. Laura Jean, yeah. <laughs> Very Southern. So I've gone back and it's been fun because we dig through the archives and found some interviews from like the mid 90s and stuff oh, just no. about your early years. <laughs> what I want to ask, it sounds like it, it started with stuff like like florist TV ads and other mm-hmm. commercials and stuff. How did how did even that begin? What was the beginning of you being a performer in some way? Well, I was asked to do a TV commercial um, for my friend's grandma's flor- flower shop okay. when I was seven. And that's when I just was like, I got to do this. I'm an actor. And I bagged my parents for acting lessons and they signed me up and it wasn't easy to find a lot of acting lessons in Nashville particularly for kids but I would take classes with adults Mm -hmm. and then I'd finish all the kids classes then do adult classes then do commercial acting classes and I just loved it and probably did it for five six years and then I got a local Nashville agent when I was 12 and started doing commercials regularly and then I got my first break to be in a movie when I was 14. And that was kind of an interesting story from what I saw because this is the movie, I guess, The Man in the Moon. This is directed by Robert Mulligan, who people know for directing To Kill a Mockingbird. This is a pretty big deal. When you went out for it, you did not know you were going out for the co-lead of these two sisters that, I guess, fall in love with the same guy. You thought you were, what, just going to be an extra? Yeah, I I thought it was just get a walk in the background of a movie. And that that was plenty for me. I was so excited that I might be in a movie in any way. And then they liked, well, they were, I didn't know what they were looking for, but it turns out they were looking for a 14 year old girl from the South with a real accent and some acting experience. And it was a world, it was like a multiple state search done by Sherry Rhodes and Joseph Middleton and yeah, and I ended up auditioning a bunch more times right. and flying to LA and be on a screen test for MGM, right. which was really. This was your first time in LA? Mm-hmm. That was my first time in LA, yeah. And when you got it, so you were 14, you said? 14. Did it mean anything to you that this is the guy that had made To Kill a Mockingbird? Was it intimidating, just the whole thing? The whole thing was so overwhelming. I really didn't know what to do. I was so nervous and just tremendously excited. Like, bursting out of my skin with excitement. And Robert Mulligan was infinitely patient with me. He had us rehearse a lot. There were two other unknowns in there, and we just rehearsed for two weeks solid down in Natchitoches, Louisiana. And that summer, before I started my freshman year of high school, I made my first movie. And how did the involvement with that movie and I guess the release of that movie affect things? Were you going to stay in school? Were you going to now move to L.A.? How did it affect things? Right. Well, once the screen test got out and people started seeing the movie, and the movie is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. I started getting more attention. And I had an agent who flew and signed me on set based on my screen wow. test. And he was my agent for probably 15 years. Wow. Named Steve Dottenville. He was awesome. And I didn't know what was going to happen. But my parents were very adamant that I stay in high school. I wasn't allowed to audition for anything if it was shooting during the school year. So you would do this in the summer? Yeah, I would do things in the summer. But pretty much every summer of high school, I made one or two. And uh, when did you actually move to L.A.? Well, when I was 18, I graduated. I went to Stanford. 
And then probably seven months into Stanford, I got a job offer to do a New Line movie. And I needed the money (laughs) to pay for college. (laughs) And ended up doing that. And then I got right after that election and a movie called Twilight, of all things. And it's not the Twilight that people know with his vampires. It was with Paul Newman and Susan Sarandon and Gene Hackman. But let's not gloss over the one that made you initially, I guess, leave Stanford was Freeway? Oh, yeah, I did Freeway. I did Freeway in a gap year before I started to Stanford. But, yeah, it came out and, yeah, I got a lot of attention from Freeway because it's a crazy character. And I think I thought it was in a serious drama and everybody else (laughs) thought it was hysterical. And that was the first time I ever felt funny in a movie. And I was like, oh, that's what comedy is. You just play it really straight. Yeah. Because I thought I was in a serious drama about a young girl growing up on the wrong side of the tracks. Right. And when we watched the movie, people were crying, (laughs) laughing, and going, where did you get that accent? So after that, you went back to Stanford. What were you studying at Stanford? Well, I was just in core curriculum classes, but I mean, I was really into literature. Yeah. But I was was part of the film society. I was taking fine arts classes. I was taking dance classes. And I love my time there. Yeah. It's great. So then you got, I guess, the offer for for Twilight, which would be appealing enough to put off school further because let's just note – Robert Benton directing with Paul Newman, Susan Sarandon, Gene Hackman. Mm-hmm. It was just too good to resist. Oh, yeah. It was a great opportunity in that I got to work with Paul Newman when I was 19 years old. It was so great. And and Mr. Benton was amazing. He was just very helpful. And he directed Kramer versus Kramer. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just thought he was amazing. So I learned a lot from my first few directors, you know, just how to act for camera and how to play for different camera angles Mm -hmm. and different lens sizes and things like that. And so after that one, there was no going back to school. You were probably now much more in demand. We got busy, yeah. Yeah. I got busy working project after project, and then two years had gone by. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's just remind people that in that immediate aftermath, I guess, of Twilight, Pleasantville, which is so great, with for Gary Ross with Tobey Maguire, Cruel Intentions, which you were doing with your – then-boyfriend, future husband, and then election, which I think maybe has the the longest life in a way of, of those or, or is held and still in such high regard. I had read that Alexander Payne said that he had wanted to work with you ever since he saw Man in the Moon mm-hmm. years earlier, and you had wanted to work with him, I guess, after seeing Citizen Ruth. Yeah, I watched Citizen Ruth. I loved the script, and then I watched Citizen Ruth, and I was blown away by Laura's performance. Yeah. And just the subject matter. And he took a subject matter that was really taboo and very divisive and made it hysterical yeah. about activism and apathy. And yeah. and Laura Dern's so funny in it. It's a great original female character. And as is Tracy Flick. And I wonder if you knew going into that 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 would provoke – I mean, even in the context, whatever, like 17 years later when – Hillary Clinton was running for president, she was constantly getting compared to Tracy Flick. What was it about that character that you liked and that also provokes that kind of reaction all these years later even in people? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think she became a political archetype. You know, it was based on the I think the 92 election. Our characters are just in a microcosm and and so all the <laughs> the different players are represented and I think she's Tracy Flick has become, I don't know, in a way, kind of a an idea of ruthless female ambition. But 
it, it, it definitely has a slant of self-serving myopic right. nature. So, because some people remember the character and they're like, oh, Tracy's like, oh, she was just like, she thought she was great. But people don't remember like at the beginning, she's, she's sleeping with her her teacher. <laughs> right. And Matthew then she Brown. outs him to the school and gets him fired. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's pretty maniacal. Right. Now I heard, did you ever discuss her with Hillary Clinton? No, I've discussed her with a few other sen- female senators, yes, though. Yeah, but and they'll they... say, everybody always talks to me about Tracy Flick. <laughs> like, what, don't we need a new female political archetype, right, please? Right, right, this right. is kind of getting silly. <laughs> so after that was American Psycho and then yeah. Legally Blonde. And so Legally. how did that, Elwoods, everybody remembers, how did that come about? And did you think it was a, a big deal at all? When I read the script for Legally Blonde, I was really on the fence. I didn't know if I wanted to do it because I thought the bad version of this is pretty frothy and ridiculous. But then I was watching Gloria Steinem on a documentary talking about Goldie Hawn's performance in Private Benjamin and how important that moment was for feminism, that this woman who's completely underestimated enters the army and... Her entire life has been defined by her romantic relationships. And in the end, she stands at the altar and punches her fiancé <laughs> in the face because he doesn't right, get her, right, you know, and right. she's changed. And I thought, wow, this is that there's there's shades of that in Legally Blonde. So I went back to Mark Platt, who produced it. And I said, let's let's pump up those aspects yeah. of the underdog and what people think of women like Elle Woods and how we do just assume certain things because of the way she looks, because I think it could be a a new definition for femininity and and the modern feminist that loves to getting her hair done and her nails done, but she's also deeply interested in her career. When did you first feel the impact of that movie? Because it sounds like, it seems to me as an observer that there was sort of before and after Legally Blonde for your career. Like it's just different totally afterwards. When did, when did you first realize it was going to click in a big way. The opening weekend, Saturday morning, Mark Platt called me and I was in New York and I was doing press for the movie and he said, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he goes, it opened to $20 million. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> he goes, Reese, it cost 11. I was like, right. oh, good. He's like, it's going to make a lot of money. I was yeah. like, that's great. And he's like, Okay, we're going to talk in like a month. Right, we're going to talk right, in like right. a month and you're going to understand a little right. bit better. Because I don't know, I was just working. I love my work and I was like, I, I love that character too, but the audience made it a hit. And and honestly, of all the movies I, I do, that one is almost daily. Someone, Someone comes up to something. me. It's always a woman and she always says, Legally Blonde is the reason I went to law school. Wow. Wow. I mean... Interesting. I wish somebody would do a study on yeah, it. They have done a study on it in China because it's the second highest Netflix movie in China oh about gosh. law. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yes, about law. Well, what? So why why do people feel so deeply about it? I think it's an underdog story, mm-hmm. and I think women are very used to those feelings. And you know, whatever is the preconceived notion about you, someone has it. And I think overcoming that and overcoming really about how you limit yourself. And it's all very done in this like really fun way in a fun package with cute costumes and mm-hmm. great characters and people really liked it. Yeah. I even think I heard that Trump used one of Legally Blonde's speeches. Really? <laughs> Somebody showed it to me. It was pretty close. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> the end speech in Legally Blonde. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, okay. So the movie comes out, it does does, you know, big business, everybody now knows who you are. How does that affect your day-to-day life? 
I mean, I was a mom, so I was 23, mm-hmm. and I had a one-year-old. So I was still trying to balance, like, what does it mean to be a mom and working? I was really kind of, I didn't understand really what to do because I had this kind of life where you pick up and leave all the time right, and right, relocate. Right. And so that was a big balance thing for me. But I decided I wanted to make another comedy pretty quickly because I wanted to, you know, kind of double down and say like, no, no, I really do want to be in comedic movies. Mm-hmm. And so then I found the script for, they sent me the script for Sweet Home Alabama. But let's pause for a sec. Even just, you were not not famous before this movie, but this blew it up to a different level. So yeah. what now changed? You can't just go to the supermarket? That's when paparazzi started for That's me. when paparazzi started? Yeah. It started in my life. And that, that that was, I could go to the supermarket and fine with fans, but yeah. that's when I started getting chased by like 10, 15 people. And I had a little baby. Scary. And um, yeah, that's when I was like, oh, God, I got to move, you know, and there's always this weird limbo time where you're more famous than you can afford. (laughs) (laughs) Before you signed up to do Sweet Home Alabama. Wow. So, okay. So Sweet Home Alabama was something that you were, were you a producer of that one as well? No. No. That started after, because I was reading that, I guess, later in 2002, which is obviously now 15 years ago, just to show that this has always been a consistent theme of your or interest of yours i guess you had a production company type a yeah type a where does that name come from first of all my parents used to call me little type a okay and you had a producing partner i guess that time jennifer simpson and she was asked to describe the type of projects that you guys were seeking out and she said quote we're looking for vehicles for reese to star in that are not necessarily romantic comedies she's into finding movies that can offer strong role models to young women close quote which I mean, I know is even more than ever now the focus of of your subsequent production companies. But, Mm -hmm. you know, Sweet Home Alabama, you do your next comedy. Then you were now now you have a little more leverage about choosing what you want to do. What was it that made you say even at that very young age when you had your pick of the litter for the first time? Why was that a, a focus of yours? Well, I grew up with a really strong grandma and a really strong mom. And I was always around really big Southern personalities. So, and I went to all girls high school. So there was a lot of talk about equality and feminism and how women were just as capable. And so I think it became clear after the success of Legally Blonde that there were a lot of young fans and it was important for me to give back to them and make sure I was representing them in a way that I felt good about. And I had a little daughter. Yeah. And I wanted to make movies for her. Sure. So that she grew up with, Great female role models on film. Would one of them have been Becky Sharp in Vanity Fair? (laughs) Yeah, Becky Sharp. Because this was, I guess, the first time where you had done a, I guess, as a lead, a quote unquote, you know, very serious drama, dramedy, you know, and this was a year before Walk the Line, which was so obviously you were starting to maybe gravitate more towards the weightier stuff you wanted Mm -hmm. to do. Yeah. Well, I really wanted to work with Mira Nair. I was a big fan of Salam Bombay and Monsoon Wedding. And so she approached me with Vanity Fair. And uh, I thought it was a great story about, you know, a woman left to her her wits and her devices in order to figure out her life. And Mm -hmm. it was a 
scary time (laughs) to be a woman out there. So that was a really interesting production. And then you um, age 17 to 35 in that character. I I was so pregnant, too, with my second kid. (laughs) I was like, different kind of challenge. I was carrying rugs in front of my belly and I was carrying (laughs) baskets in front of my belly. And it was a unique challenge for sure. It was a very demanding part. But I really believed in Mira's vision. And then, as we said, just a a year later, walk the line. What this ends up being the Oscar performance, but when you signed up for it, did you ever imagine that it could go over that well, or was it just a, like, what drew you to that one? You know, I met James Mangold and Kathy Conrad at an engagement party, (laughs) and Jim said to me, hey, I said, what are you writing? And he said, I'm writing a movie about Johnny Cash, and I said, oh, that's so funny, I grew up with his grandkids, and I grew up in Nashville, and he's like, you did? I was like, (laughs) oh, yeah, yeah, I know all about country music, and my dad it was an ear, nose, and throat surgeon who worked on a lot of singers oh at God. the time. Wow. So, I mean, I grew up with Pee Hall, like down the street <laughs> and <laughs> the Ralph Emery show every morning at 6 right. a.m. Yeah. So I, about a year later, he called me. He goes, I have a script I want you to read. And I said, okay. And he goes, I want you to play June Carter. And I said, me? <laughs> yeah, I want you to play June Carter. And I was like, Oh, okay. I never sang before in a movie or anything like that. I had trained. I wanted to be a country music singer when I was little, okay. so I had trained when I was little, mm-hmm. but it it didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> they always tell me in all like my um, performances, they'd be like, "You should t- the acting thing could really work out for you." But the, the right. singing, I go to like performing art camp right. and the cat skills and stuff when I was thirteen, and right. I remember this guy saying to me. You can dance all right, and you're a really, really good actor, but the, the singing, you probably <laughs> shouldn't keep doing the singing. Right. So you had to get that in shape. So I was like, oh, no. So I had to start training. So we trained Joaquin and I five days a week for six months Wow. with different vocal coaches. Joaquin played with a band. We learned a guitar. I learned the audio harp, and we had to learn all the songs. We Jim wanted us to be almost like we could be a band, like we could stand up and do a Just whole that, yeah. gig. And we kind of could. We, you, yeah. They would be like, okay, we're going to do this in the quarter of G, and let's go. And we just <laughs> do it. We had to perform during the movie a lot. How intimidating was that? It was horrible. Yeah. I heard, it, and this may not be true, but did it almost get to the point where it was a deterrent to even doing the movie? Yeah, I had a really bad recording session with T-Bone Burnett one day. Not any fault of his, but I just could not get this song. It just sounded awful every time they played the playback. And I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I went outside, screamed really <laughs> loud. And then I called my attorney on the way home and I was like, get me out of this movie. I'm going to make a fool of myself. Right. This is bad. I'm going down in flames here. <laughs> and he's like, well, it's too late. I can call, but like, they start shooting in a month. I was like, get me out of it. Get me out. I can't do it. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. And he called me back and he said, there's nothing I can do. You're going to have to do the movie. And I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> so I just kind of buckled down and worked harder on the songs and just threw myself on the mercy of T-Bone Burnett. And he really helped create these tracks that mm. were amazing. And, and then he kind of coached me on how to do it, you know. Were June and Johnny still around to be consulted, or were they had they both passed? They had just passed the year before. So you missed them. I did not meet them, which is a bummer. Yeah. Joaquin got to meet them both, though, which okay. was really great. And a lot of their friends have come up to me afterwards and said they would have loved what you guys did. And 
It really touches my heart when I, I meet bet. somebody who knew them. When it started clicking with people, and you'd obviously already been a very popular actress, but this was now a claim that had not come at in the same way up till that point where you start winning every freaking award there is. What did that mean to you? Aside from, obviously, it's cool to win a Golden Globe or an Oscar or whatever, but did it have a greater meaning as far as just being accepted into the profession that you'd spent already a lot of time pursuing? Yeah, I mean, I have to say it was surreal because I was of two minds the entire time during that award season. At first, I was like, you're equal parts. I don't want this. <laughs> and equal parts, like, oh, my God, I want that. Why wouldn't you want it? I feel like I grew up being kind of underestimated. I felt like I was always the underdog. I was always shorter than everyone. Mm-hmm. So I was always like the last person picked on the dodgeball team. <laughs> and I thrive off of feeling misunderstood. Mm-hmm. So the idea that all of my peers would get together collectively and decide that I was worthy or I'd give me this incredible award made me feel like I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I don't know that that's not a right. feeling that puts fire in right, me. Right, right, right. But it was it was a great experience and I really I was so thankful for the team that I had with me, which was, you know, Joaquin was amazing and Jim and Kathy were great and T Bone was yeah. awesome. And uh, it really was the collected effort of all of us to get the poor I was bummed Joaquin didn't win, Mm -hmm. but it's a really special time in my life. I remember it very well. Yeah. What happened, I guess, around the same time, same year, actually, there was another one that I just have to give a shout out because I loved it a lot. I don't know. Just like heaven. I actually really like a lot. But then you so then you get into early 06, you win. And then there's a period that you've described and I've read a bunch of places where you've talked about it as, quote, feeling lost close quote, your next credits over the next few years, Rendition in 2007, Four Christmases 2008, Monsters vs. Aliens 2009, How Do You Know 2010, Water for Elephants 2011, This Means War 2012. How Do You Know Water for Elephants and This Means War? These are all like love triangle movies. It seems like none of them went over quite in the way you'd hoped they would. It was kind of a a weird period, personally and professionally. What was that about? Well, I won the Oscar, and I felt really confused what to do next. Mm -hmm. I had paralysis, Oscar-induced paralysis. (laughs) Yeah, it happens often. People don't know how to follow it. You don't know what to do. Yeah, You know, it's a combination of the things you're offered, the things you choose, the things. And I was going through a really personal, difficult time where Mm -hmm. I was getting divorced. I had two little kids, little kids, like seven and three. So I just kind of needed to, like, put my head down and take care of family you know sometimes movies don't have to be home runs they can be doubles yeah they can be singles you know and it's all part of what makes you a better person at your craft and your trade and i worked with some amazing people like francis lawrence and rodrigo prieto and janusz kaminski and jim brooks and and owen wilson and Paul Rudd and Jack Nicholson. So it wasn't a loss. (laughs) No. So I'm just trying to gauge like the only reason I even ask about it is it sounds like it was almost a motivator for what has come in these years since that. And if there was a turning point that sort of marked the end of that period and the beginning of the one that is going so great now, it sounds like you've talked about this 2012. There was a was there an article that pissed you off in The New Yorker? Oh, yeah. Someone in The New Yorker said that I was a has-been or my career was over. And I remember thinking, how old was I in 2012? Like 
36. <laughs> I was like, wow, <laughs> that's, that's brutal. It wasn't, in fairness to you, it wasn't, they were just unloading on a lot of people. Oh, yeah, right. me, Sandra Bullock, Tom right. Hanks was apparently over right. too. <laughs> such has-beens. Right, right. Well, um, but it, no, I mean, that really, that really bugged me. But, you know, what really motivated me and got, like, lit the fire underneath me was I got sent this script. I was kind of looking at all these bad parts. And after 2008 and the, you know, the financial crisis yeah. and, and we lost a big piece of our business with the DVD business. So it's right. like a third of our business kind of just went away. And I feel like the first thing to go with the 30, 40 million dollar movies, which is where women live. I mean, that's where women star in movies. Mid-range. Yeah, mid-range. And that's comedy. And so I would go from getting 10 scripts a year to two scripts a year. And I remember getting one of those two scripts and it w- had had two female leads in it. And it was the worst piece of crap <laughs> I had ever read. I mean, misogynistic, ridiculous with this bad comedy person in the center and I called my agent and I said I don't even know who would want to do this This is so (laughs) bad this is like lowest bottom of the barrel he said every actress in Hollywood wants it right now Jesus I said are you kidding me he goes no and they ended up getting two of the biggest female movie stars of that time (laughs) to be in this movie that was Truly awful. <laughs> and I thought, I've got to do something. Yeah. If, if I'm feeling this way and those women are feeling like this is a good this idea, a good we got to do something because this is ridiculous. Women are better than this and these actresses are better than this. So before we go further with what you did to correct that problem, I think people would be surprised to hear that when you say you would only get two scripts a year, I would think you could have any script you wanted. So what is does that mean that somebody is – weeding down the best and those two are still not they good? They stopped development for women. So after 2008, after the writer's strike, mm-hmm. you're talking about the seven majors yeah. had, and I don't know, I don't work at one of the majors, but it was deeply apparent to me yeah. that the mandate was don't develop things for women. Maybe it wasn't a concerted thing, right, but it was right. like, we don't want any mid-range movies, right. which is where women lived, which is why it all started. And I would talk to my female actress friends and they'd be like yeah where did all the scripts go well not only did there there were no scripts they weren't making them Mm -hmm. anymore i'd walk into studios and say hey i have this idea and i have this script and you know and and they'd say well we really like it and we think it's good but we already have our female movie this year jesus and they wouldn't even be explicit about that oh they'll say right to your face i mean it's a corporate entity they're trying to fill quotas and numbers and it isn't about like I mean, it's really numbers. It was, it's an economics game. And so I don't, you know, I don't resent them for the conversation. They were just being honest with me. But I was like, I got to figure out, not only do I have to find a different way to get material, but I have to find a different way to get it made. And in the meantime, you, I guess, have always been, it sounds like a voracious reader. But at that time, maybe because of that predicament, somebody, whether it's you or somebody else said, wait a minute, there's something we can actually do with this to also apply to the film career. Like reading all these books, maybe there's maybe we can start to actually pursue making them into movies. Well, my husband said to me one day I was reading. I read a lot and Mm -hmm. I've always read a lot. Mm -hmm. And he said, "Um, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm reading a script. And I think I the next day was like, did you read the script? I was like, oh, yeah, I read that script and I read three other scripts. And I'm reading this book tonight. He's like, do you know nobody reads like you read? Like (laughs) that's like a superpower how much you read. And I was like, really? How much did you read? 
Or do you? I read a lot. I can, I probably read, mm, like right now, I probably read three or four books a week. Wow. Wow. I mean, that, I mean, that's not a crazy amount, but. Well, you've got other things going on too. Yeah, but I really, I really enjoy it. And I can, I mean, read scripts in an hour or whatever, Mm -hmm. but he was like, you know, you should buy some of those books and turn them into movies. And I just never thought about it. Mm-hmm. I was like, you think I should? He's like, yeah, you know what's going to get made and what's not going to mm-hmm. get made from 20 years of doing mm-hmm. this. And he said, I think you should do it again. I said, I had a production company. And he said, yeah, but you were depending on other people to bring you stuff. And now I think you should do it and do it with your own money. And so I did. And I self-funded it for five years. How did you and for those five years, your, your producing partner, Bruno Papandrea, how did you guys connect? Well, the reason I wanted to start was because I read Wild. Mm-hmm. Cheryl Strayed sent it to me directly, and she said, I want you to play me in Wild. And it was just a random letter that wow. went through my agent. And I read it in 24 hours. I read it on a plane. I remember sobbing on the plane. <laughs> and people next to me were like, are you okay? <laughs> and I called her the next day, and I said, I, I really I really want to do this. And not only do I want to do this, I want to produce it. And I wonder if you'll sell me the option. And she was like, okay. <laughs> I'm sure all her agents thought that was a terrible idea. But, and she believed in me. She believed that I was going to do it. Because I knew I had to do it in a way that wasn't going to go through the studio system. Because I've had a couple of experiences where I had characters that were a little bit edgier or more controversial or cursed all the time. And this had sex, drugs. I have an abortion. I do heroin. <laughs> I'm naked. Right. And I, I just could see the studio notes in my mind of... <laughs> Yeah, I have a threesome in an alley. <laughs> like, can we just make sure Reese doesn't say fuck or doesn't do any? Can, she, can we just take the part that's heroin out and just right. never smoke cigarettes instead? And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do that to right. Cheryl. And they would have said that, though, just so listeners who maybe aren't in the business can understand because they don't want to screw up something that's worked in the past. You are the perky, likable, you know, right. one that everybody wants to be friends with or whatever. And that would not conform to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you don't want to mess with the formula. You don't want to mess with audience perception. And so Bill Pollard gave us the money to develop the script. Nick Hornby wrote it really quickly. And then I let a few studios see it, like three. And I said, I'm not changing a word, and we're ready to shoot. <laughs> and we're not changing a word. Mm-hmm. And we ended up making it with Fox Searchlight. And they were awesome. They were really helpful. So there you're the first time you're producing as well, right? Yes. Uh, something that you're in? Yeah. And what was that aspect of it like? Because the part itself, the performance itself, you said, was physically, emotionally the most tolling of any that you'd done, I believe you've said. Oh, yeah. I mean, Wild is 100% the hardest movie I've ever made in my entire life. And it's probably the one that's closest to my heart because I feel like pretty much my guts are all over yeah. that movie. And on top of that, you're now in charge of overseeing the production. Yeah, and I took a big risk. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, optioning it, putting myself out there as a producer, and then and making this film where I wore no makeup, was naked, mm-hmm. doing all these things that audiences hadn't seen me do, but I really believe my audience had grown up mm-hmm. and wanted to see the next level, mm-hmm. the next chapter, mm-hmm. not, you know, a 38-year-old woman pretending to be 25. <laughs> How yeah. sweet were the reviews, the box office, the Oscar nomination? That all must have had extra meaning because of the, all the reasons you've just said. Well, it was a really amazing year. I mean, to have that movie come out, but at the same time, Gone Girl came out. So we produced, Bruna and I 
produced Gone Girl as well. Bruna came on after I had the Wild manuscript, and mm-hmm. then she and I together, Leslie Dixon brought us Gone Girl in manuscript form, and we shopped it all over town, and literally everyone said no, except girl. for one studio. <laughs> and as we were making the deal with one studio, the book hit number one, and another studio came in, outbid them, and I had to fight to stay on the project. I literally had to call everybody I'd ever make a movie with and say, please keep me on this project. Please keep me on this project. When you say because they wanted to box you out, they were going to have somebody else come in? The studio who bought the movie had told me no. (laughs) It's just such a long, weird story. But I had to call on friendships and just say, like, this is a lot. You can't do this or cut me out. So anyway, the same time, they, they shot Gone Girl simultaneously to Wild. So we were... You know, and I was looking at the dailies of Gone Girl mm-hmm. at night in my trailer, and it was just fantastic. And Rosamond was so amazing. And and then to get to the award season and have Laura Dern, mm-hmm. myself, and Rosamond all be nominated was like in the first year of my production company where I wanted to change perception of women in film. I was like, it's working. Yeah, <laughs> it was an amazing moment. It was just crazy. Well, let's go back a step though. Just a, a testament to taste that you guys have. You mentioned that Gone Girl was top of the bestseller list. That was top of the fiction bestseller list in the same week that Wild was top of the nonfiction bestseller list. Yeah. So that must have given you some cred with the literary community. You know, it didn't. People started to notice. People started to go, oh. And also the speed with which I was getting things made. Most things languish around in development for a long time. But by circumventing a certain aspect of development, I was able to get things made faster. And that was important to you because why? You just didn't want to sit around. Because I don't want to hear 7,000 notes about something that people don't even know about. And (laughs) I really do know – I feel really strongly that I've watched my audience. I've grown up with my audience. I know what they want to see. I know how they want to be challenged. I know how they don't want to see me in. And Gone Girl was just this great book. We read it six months before it came out. And it was just, you couldn't put it down. And you couldn't believe this character, this woman who was like Patrick Bateman or mm-hmm. some sort of sociopathic person. But you did for a long time, you didn't know that she was so maniacal. And Were you I, drawn to playing that one at any point as well? I was certainly open to it, but David Fincher and I had a conversation that was very frank when he started casting, and he just did not see me in the part at all. Right. So when David Fincher tells you his vision right. and it's clear, you just say, okay. Right. I couldn't believe I was producing a movie that David Fincher was directing, <laughs> and it was like my second movie to be produced. So I was like, yeah. no, 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 I'm all good. <laughs> I'm all good. So when along this period did Big Little Lies, this book, first cross your radar, I would imagine it was in the midst of this other stuff, right? Right. Oh, I was making a movie with Sofia Vergara in Louisiana, and I was talking to somebody on set who had come to visit, and I said, oh, we just both love reading, and she's, she was telling me this book she was making, and I said, well, have you read The Husband's Secret, which is Leanne Moriarty's book? And she mm-hmm. goes, oh, my God, I love it. She goes, and I just got her new manuscript. Do you want to read it? And I said, yes. She goes, because... <laughs> We're not going to make it. <laughs> I was like, okay. Right. So they'd already passed on it. And I was like, yes, 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 because it didn't get submitted to me. So I read it in 24 hours, and Bruna read it. And Bruna immediately called Nicole Kidman, who she's been dear friends with for a long time. They're both Australian. Yes. <laughs> and she said, Nicole, you have to read this in 24 hours. Now she did that because you guys had said maybe this could be something we could do together? Yes. 
And every single one of Leon's books has been bought for development. And we just knew it was going to go quickly. And we had to get competitive. So Nicole was in Sydney, Australia, drove over to Leanne's house and said, if you give this to me and Reese, we will get it made (laughs) and we will get it made fast. And with the two of you in it, with the two of us in it. And it's pretty hard to. Well, I don't know. Nicole was definitely going to be in it, but I didn't know if I was going to be in it. But I said, we're going to get it made fast. And so probably from the time she had that conversation, we were in production six months later. And for you, it sounds like the thing that convinced you that you should be in it, if you had any doubts, was David E. Kelly or what was the... Yeah. Yeah. So David Kelly came on once he read the book. He just loved it. And we were in a meeting and I said, yeah, but I don't know who I'm going to play. And (laughs) Nicole and David looked at me like, are you crazy? (laughs) Why? You're Madeline. Now, why do they say that? Do you see it? I don't know. I said, I'm not Madeline. What are you talking (laughs) about? And they said, there's nobody who can play Madeline but you. I said... Well, I don't know. I think David had this very personal idea of this person that Madeline reminded him of. And he was like, you just remind me of her. Well, it's just that. I mean, because I've seen, at least for the screen persona, people don't know what what you're actually like. But based on the characters that you have played in, in various things, I mean, she's a bit of a type A, right? She mm-hmm. can be a little bit of a, in a in a fun way, a bit of a busybody, mm-hmm. a little neurotic, a little sassy, a little wisecracking. All the, I'm looking at all the adjectives that have been used in the various commentary reviews or whatever, certainly indomitable, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, all of these, if, if there was a collective description of your body of work, it mm-hmm. does make sense that maybe you would you would play this part. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just didn't see it. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be. I just didn't see it. I right. thought, I don't know. <laughs> but then I ended up going, okay. I, I read the first three scripts. And I was like, okay, I get this. And Nicole and I had a long talk about it where she was like, and this is what, this, but we're going to find deep compassion through humor. You know, we've got to lure people in thinking this is, I don't know. I think people thought when they saw the previews, oh, this is like Sex and City, girls talking about sex and marriage. And, and then it was like, actually, no, this is about some really sinister shit. Right. <laughs> like really subversive domestic violence, adultery, right. rape, murder. And it all around. has this like froth on the top. Jane Campion said to Nicole Kidman, she goes, it's like the perfect cappuccino. <laughs> it's like frothy on the top, and then it's like dark and heavy underneath. And the reason that that is possible is because you didn't do what I guess at one point was considered, which was to do it as a feature. How could you ever have given all the layers and, and the breathing space that you needed if it was going to be a feature? But that was considered? Yeah. And in the 11th hour, we got a call. We were really almost done with HBO. And, and uh, one of the seven majors called and said, we want to turn it into a movie because it had hit number one. Mm-hmm. I think it was number one or number two on mm-hmm. the bestsellers list. And, you know, Nicole and I had a long conversation about it. We just thought we needed the the real estate just to tell those stories. And I think what was kind of watershed about it for both of us is neither one of us had had that experience of getting to work with a troop of women who are at a certain caliber. Right. I'd never done, I think maybe other than one other project on the, with one woman, you know, my entire career I've been the only woman in the cast. And so had Nicole, and so had Shailene, and so had Zoe. And whether you have like a token girlfriend, but to have five women be the leads of their own storylines and have them have this incredible resolution where the power of female friendship is what resolves all of it. Let's just remind people, it's you, Nicole Kidman, Shailene Woodley, Laura Dern, Zoe Kravitz, 
and others as well. And I guess this must have been you getting Jean-Marc Vallée, who had also done Wild. You brought Br- him on. Yeah, Bruno and I approached Jean-Marc and asked him to do it. And he was going to do two episodes. And then he got, well, he got super into it. So he designed all the soundtrack for the entire thing. And then he got really into the visual style. And then he found all the locations in Monterey. And then I think we had a we had a weak moment with a bottle of red wine one <laughs> night on dinner. And Bruno and I just did a one-two attack. And we were like, come on, <laughs> come on, you love being us. And we really take care of him. We love Jean-Marc, to, to work with him is to love him because he is just the consummate filmmaker constantly thinking about character. I think he cares more about the performances than the actors do. He cares more about the music than, than the composers do. Mm-hmm. He cares more about the editing because he does the editing. Right. And he he just had this comprehensive vision from the very beginning. He's well, the one who built in this whole metaphor of the water and the waves yeah, yeah. being like human nature and uncontrollable. That's great. Last two things. First, I guess, what is it about, if you could pinpoint about Big Little Eyes, what is it that turned it into this social media phenomenon? I mean, today with such a fragmented audience, you don't really have too many things where it's like the water cooler experience. People want to watch something at the same time and then talk about it the next day and all of that. You guys achieved that. So what was it about the project itself that allowed you to do that? I have no idea why people <laughs> liked it so much. I mean, I thought people would like it, but I didn't think it would be like that. Yeah. Like appointment viewing and the thing that people were speaking about. I think it is like a anomaly to see that level of women dealing and each character so fully realized and has so many layers yeah. and each character has a secret. And then it had this driving impetus of the murder. Who did it? Who did it? Right. Any one of these people could do it. Any one of those people who I think is like me, I'm like Madeline or I'm like <laughs> Renata. And people like to identify themselves with the characters. Right, right. You were invited into their friendships and then you became part of their struggles. Last question is just, I guess, since Big Little Lies was completed, you and Bruna have now parted ways. You now have your, what had been Pacific Standard is now absorbed into Hello Sunshine, which is a larger media company, as I understand it, you and Peter Chernin. I'm not self-funding anymore. <laughs> is that the big, is that the big, because I was going to say, so like, no, what's I'm the big? St- I, I lie, I'm still self-funding, self-funding part of largely. it. <laughs> yeah. No, so I was going to, I mean, so w- now that going forward, you've got that, and then also I was reading yesterday in our own publication about, I don't know how true this is, but we've got you and Jennifer Aniston, sounds like, going to TV, doing a series. Yeah. I mean, what do the next few years look like in your mind? Well, I'm really excited about Hello Sunshine and my partnership with Peter Turner and AT&T because it, it creates an opportunity to reach women where they are through mobile content, digital content. And I just feel like audience behavior has changed mm-hmm. and production companies need to change. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we have a big focus on TV and short form content that's going to be, you know, a, I think also an opportunity to give female directors a shot young female writers an opportunity to write something maybe you don't we can't get a two-hour movie you know you can't get that done at the majors but we can certainly find a platform for you to be able to have a short film or a 30-minute doc series about something you're passionate about Mm -hmm. so that's really exciting to me and yeah i'm excited i think you know i mean i don't know what's going to happen but it's a great idea, and Jen and I have loved each other for years since I played her little sister on Friends. Oh, my God. And, <laughs> and so you guys have been developing this, and now it's just a question of where it goes? Well, so, yeah, Michael Ellenberg, formerly of HBO, brought me this book that it's based on, and it's really interesting, just about morning news and the machinations that are in there and, like, 
the personalities involved and the real lives of people who are seemingly America's first family. <laughs> and Jen loved it as well. And we just thought it'd be really fun to do this together at this point in our lives and really enjoy the process of working together and and dig deep into story, but also have some fun. Because I think audiences right now, like, they want to have some fun. They want to watch stuff that's like, mm-hmm. it's easy to watch, but it's also got, you know, enough grit there that right. it keeps you entertained. It's so. dark out there. We need some of that. Yeah. 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 Well, maybe uh, Big Little Eyes. We'll see if where, I mean, I know you get a lot of requests for number two, but. Yeah. But, you know, it's sort of up to Leon Moriarty. Yeah, right, now. right, so right. She has to figure out if she sees the future for right. the characters. But you're open to it. Yeah, we're definitely open to it. We loved working on it. Awesome. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. This is fun. 